let's see. Let's see. We were in the middle of talking about the different um, ideas which are allowed to be decided by the rabbis. And, and we're talking about, okay, we're talking about the general principle. Okay, fine. So we're on page 343. And yesterday, what we were talking about is that there's, there's something which is important to recognize, which is if you believe in a general principle, that's the overarching principle to guiding something, and someone comes to you with a couple of points that don't seem to work out as well, but the general principle is not really completely uh, blown away yet, you can still believe in the general principle, right? You might be asking a question on it, but you still believe in the general principle. So the Kuzari said, I admit that you could take me to task for not being totally satisfied, since I've already conceded to the general principles that you explained. Nevertheless, I will not be totally satisfied until I've spoken sufficiently with you about certain details. The rabbi said, say what you will. The Kuzari said, the punishment for one who injures another is quite explicit in the Torah. As it says, an eye for an eye. Whatever wound he inflicts upon another man, so shall it be done to him. How then can the sages say that the punishment is not what the Torah writes, but is instead monetary compensation to the damaged party for his loss? In other words, the principle that we're trying to really reckon with right now is sometimes it seems like the Torah tells us one piece of information, and then the rabbis come and make up their own information, right? How do the rabbis have the right to do that? After all, the Torah itself states that you shall not add or subtract from the Torah. And when the rabbis are coming and coming up with their own understanding, seemingly that's either subtracting or adding to the Torah. How is that permitted? He says, well, you have to understand that's not really what's going on. So then the Kazari's response is, what do you mean? I'll give you a very classic example. It says explicitly in the Torah, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But yet we don't do that. How do the rabbis have the right to do that? The rabbi said, but it also says earlier in the same paragraph, one who smites an animal's soul shall pay for it. Soul for soul. Does not the word pay denote restitution and monetary restitution? Furthermore, the Torah cannot be saying that if someone struck your horse, you should strike his horse. You will not benefit from striking his horse. Rather, it means take his horse. Similarly, if someone cuts off your hand, you take restitution for your hand, but you receive no benefit from cutting off his hand. Now, to be clear, the, the rabbi is now going to go through a bunch of the different points that the Gemara and Bavakama discusses. Because the Gemara and Bavakama goes through this question. How do we know that it's meant to be understood? Not literally. The Gemara has a lot of information, pages and pages, exhaustively detailing why it is not meant to be understood literally. These laws especially contain details which appear to be contrary to reason. It says wound for wound, bruise for bruise. How are we supposed to measure this? Right? How do you measure that what my wound is the same as yours? It's impossible to quantify. Moreover, while one person might die from a certain wound, another would not. How can we equate the two qualitatively? How can we remove an eye from someone who has only one eye and restitution for someone else who possesses two eyes? In other words, Let's say you have a guy who has one eye and he, and he causes someone else to become blind in one eye. Well, if it'll be an eye for an eye, this is what the Gemara says, actually. If it'll be an eye for an eye, then the person who had one eye initially now has no eyes. That wouldn't be fair or vice versa. The result, the result would be that the former would become blinded while the latter would still be sighted in one eye. Yet the Torah says, whatever wound be inflicted upon another man, so shall it be done to him. So clearly it cannot be literal. But why do I need to talk to you about these details after I've already explained the need for a tradition and the credibility of its transmitters, as well as their greatness, wisdom, and tenacity in preserving tradition? Right, this has been repeated multiple times. Why is this being repeated multiple times? The author is trying to clue us in to a fact of life. The fact of life is that this is one of the most difficult things to accept, right? To say, hey, listen, I completely abnegate my judgment and submit myself to the judgment of the rabbis. 
is very, very difficult for multiple reasons. And therefore, this is one of the things that becomes the greatest um, moments of friction or points of friction where people push back. Because Ari said, all that notwithstanding, I would still like to know why God commanded us to guard ourselves from spiritual impurity. Tumah. The rabbi said, spiritual impurity and holiness are diametrically opposite each other. You will not find one without the other. Where there is no holiness, there is no possibility for spiritual impurity. Spiritual impurity is simply that thing which restricts one from coming in contact with anything which is holy and sanctified for God, such as the kohanim, their food, their clothing, shruma, which is eaten by the kohanim, the tithes, the sacrifices of the temple, and many more. Conversely, holiness is simply that thing which restricts one from coming in contact with many well-known spiritually impure items. Most of these restrictions apply only when the divine presence is with us, which in our day is not the case. In other words, the very idea that this level of holiness is so apparent and so holy as to warrant not allowing anybody to become literally impure only holds true when we're in a high level of, of, of uh, holiness by having the temple with us, the divine presence with us. Therefore, what laws we have today, such as the prohibition of having intercourse with a menstruating woman or a woman who has just given birth, are not meant to restrict contact with spiritual impurity, as one would think from the text, but are rather divine commandments of their own. Similarly, those laws which we practice to distance ourselves from these women, such as not eating with them and guarding ourselves from any physical contact with them, are merely protective measures to avoid anything that could lead to intercourse. Just to give a little bit of an understanding, a little bit of a background to what he's referring to over here. There is no halacha that a person is not allowed to eat with a woman who is currently menstruating. There's no halacha like that. What he's referring to is very specifically the halachas that allow a husband to be together with his wife. A husband is not allowed to, I mean, nobody's allowed to have intercourse with someone else's man, someone else's wife, no matter what. But a husband's not allowed to have intercourse with his wife when she's menstruating. Okay. So the rabbis said, and they said this based on verses in the Torah that indicate that on, in all likelihood, this is actually a prohibition on the Torah level as well. Now, there are certain behaviors that husband and wife do for each other. And these are behaviors that engender a certain level of, of closeness and intimacy with each other. And those behaviors are likely to lead to having relations. And those types of behaviors that are very uniquely suited for a husband and wife relationship we want you to refrain from them during time periods when your wife is forbidden to you. Because we want to ensure that there are, are laws in place that are what we call giddarim, right? Walls and harchakas, um, right? Things that enable us to create a certain sense of distance, physical distance, so that one will not come to actually have intercourse. So when we say we don't eat with them, it's not true that you don't eat with, uh, with the wife. It doesn't mean that. What he means to say is you don't eat with them in the same way that you would typically eat with them. So a husband and wife will not serve each other food. They will not eat food from the same plate. So these are things that are acts of intimacy that typically you do specifically with your spouse, right? And, and they're not exactly, you know, they're not actual physical intimacy, but they are acts that are on the, I guess, the spectrum of physical intimacy. And therefore the rabbis explain, once again, probably on a Torah level, forbidden to engage in these activities, but not because of Toma, not because the wife is spiritually impure, rather so as to have offense to ensure that one does not end up sleeping when um, sleeping with his wife when his wife is in the state of uh, a prohibition to you. Okay, um, we're gonna stop over here. Everyone should have a, a great Shabbos.